Hello, dearest patrons. We're back with another Alf Hibonis bonus. It's been a little while. If you're new to us, which uh, I think many of you are, this is a, an episode where we take your questions, comments, and especially criticisms. Those are the best ones, uh, the meatiest ones, uh, and discuss them. Um, you people seem to enjoy it, so we keep doing these. Uh, though it's actually been over two months since we've done one, so we've been remiss. Sorry about that, but we're back, and we have loads of comments of yours to get to. Unfortunately, we're not going to deal with every single thing that gets sent to us. Um, if your question was a stupid one, you know who you are. We're sorry, um, but that's just the way it is. Uh, no, we, we, we do endeavor to uh, deal with as many of these uh, as possible. So we're going to get started. But um, I should say hello to Phil and George. Not that I'm just like doing this on myself. Hi. Thanks for hello. having us, Alex. That's really generous and kind of you. Hello, Phil and Alex. How are you guys doing? Yeah, very well. I, I forgot my whole checklist. I didn't say what date it is. Uh, listener, it's Sunday, the 20th of June. What else is on the checklist? Uh, well, to say hi to Phil and George at the beginning, and I forgot that too. I just did this whole thing. So uh, anything uh, you want to talk about, George? You're, you're very eager to talk about an article you've written. So this is... Well, you say you say that. I mean, I, I, I did write no, an no. article. Come on, I mean, George, it's... do your show and tell for mommy and daddy. Come on. It's... Um, well, we're recording this on the day before what was originally going to be Freedom Day, 21st of June. But that's been postponed. Freedom has uh, been slowly cancelled here in, in the UK. So, yeah, very demoralising. Uh, By Freedom Day, you mean that all restrictions on the uh, that were still left over from the multiple lockdowns over the last 18 months were going to be fully lifted. So there was going to be no legal restrictions on gathering public gatherings, numbers, wearing of masks and all the other kind of tedious paraphernalia of the lockdowns was all going to end. Yeah. Can I just yes, say Freedom you, Day is just the whole branding is incredibly naff. It's incredibly lame and politically, I think, problematic too, because it's not like some great freedom is going to suddenly open up. It's just going back to what things were like before. Disagree. I think the, um, I think, and in fact, the fact that it's been cancelled, and I guess George can speak more to it, but I think the fact it's been cancelled is very important because I think drawing a clear, bright line between lockdown and post-lockdown is very important. Because... No, no, I, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with calling it Freedom Day. Which well, think... what would you rather call it then? Liberty Day? Just end of, end of, end of lockdowns. Day. End, of, end of lockdown day. Look, it is very clearly Unlocking a restoration day. of very basic kind of uh, civil liberties and public life. And of already it, deteriorated civil liberties. Well, so, and that's that. So that's just my point. It's it's like yeah. It's I think no, it's just very self-serving from the government to do this. It, this is the great yes, but indeed, flowering right? of freedom. Oh, no, indeed. But you know, at the same time, like I don't think we should assume everyone is stupid, and that people don't see through that. Um, I was happy to accept the badging of Freedom Day because I think the restoration of these basic things was very important. What I was going to say before I was rudely interrupted is I think the worst thing about all of this is uncertainty, right? So it's not just the kind of the inanity or the um, frustration of restrictions, many of which you know have been lifted, but it's also just the overall uncertainty of um, you know now that there isn't a clear bright line between the two things, there is also the possibility that there will be further restrictions in the autumn and winter, um, and more yeah. of a possibility. So I think it's this constant uncertainty over the future, which is far more demoralizing than any specific restriction. Mm. And let's bear in mind, we had to postpone the launch of a certain book, right? For this reason. Yeah. The, the book is still coming out when it's coming out, which is to say uh, five days from now when we're recording this, but only three days from when you're listening to this, uh, you can almost taste it. 
but we, uh, we want to do a launch, a live launch in, in London, which will have to be postponed into later July. Um, but if you're in London in the area, or if you want to fly over half the world uh, to, to come join us for the Bunga Party, uh, we would love to have you. Anyway, George, uh, why don't you talk about your article specifically? Yeah, that's that's fine. I think you, Phil did a good job of explaining uh, to me what I, what I meant by by Freedom Day <laughs> in the article. Um, You're welcome, man. I find yeah, that I'm good at this. Cheers. It's it's appreciated. Um, but yeah, basically, it's not. You know, it's just a, just something on how I think the I think two points really. One, the again another kind of postponement and and long-term uncertainty and the slow cancellation of of the future and our liberties and whatever uh, it just shows that there's no there's no one in control um there's no political force able to break the logic of the lockdown time is indeed a, a flat circle and um these delays and can kicking um now the dominant mode of pandemic politics were also in some ways the dominant mode of, of brexit politics it's there's a clear continuity um and yeah, I mean, that's it. Check, check it. You know, listeners can check it out at um, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash W double W full stop the full Brexit full stop C O M forward slash B L O G. So there you go. I, I just wanted to do that because I could see Alex rolling his eyes. Did you say double oh, no. double W? That's not. Yeah. No one does that. That's a that's a known format. I think it's. It's not. It's uh, Brian Butterworth. I'm, it's I'm it's actually sure. sex sex tuple double sex tuple U right because it's if it's a double U and there's three of them that's six U's so it's six U. <laughs> six U's. I've never heard that. Which is what we should do instead of www six that's, U dot. It's fewer syllables as well. Yeah. Um. Anyway, sorry, I kind of belaboured that point a bit, uh, led us down a, 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 the wrong road. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's hardly a new kind of uh, argument, this piece, but I think it was just just written because I was, you know, I won't stand for this anymore. Um, but obviously, what am I going to do about it? Write a blog? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's changed everything. <laughs> it's really, it's unlocked things. Well, you were sent to a, I mean, it's sent as part of, it was uh, published on the full Brexit, so it went to both to full Brexit supporters. And I think there's utility in trying to connect um, the politics that come out of Brexit with the difficulties and frustrations that have come. And indeed, I mean, you know, everything else, um, the imposition and oppressiveness and mismanagement, everything that has come through lockdown. I don't think that is, um, you know, I don't think drawing those connections is um, fatuous. And of course, I expect um, finally that uh, you'll be going on an anti-lockdown march. Is that right, George? You managed to have, despite all your ranting about lockdown in public. I got the, um, I got the, I got the tap on the shoulder march. and the like, here's where it's happening. So, so, do we, so we know when it's, so we yeah. know when the next one is? Um, on Saturday, the 26th of June. Yeah. So we can, ah, okay. uh, so we, we, we should can hopefully, have a, we can we have a socially to, distanced uh, shindig. We want to try to, um, yeah, maybe bring you listeners something from that uh we'll endeavor to do that more uh watch the space basically um yeah I'll, I'll i'll be joining though um quietly and peacefully so as not to be deported uh <laughs> oh come on don't do this shit man you're a gringo you're not getting deported anywhere give us a break what do you mean i'm i mean i'm a, I'm a gringo in the uk i'm not a ukist you know, just just carry fuck? around your Swiss yes. passport as well. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no, oh, and your and better. your Dutch passport as well. You know, just mm -hmm. in case, and any other passports you might have. 
Mm, should maybe collect some more. I'll I'll ask my handlers for uh, some extra. Anyway, um, yeah. let us get let's get cracking with the matter at hand, which is responding to our beautiful listeners' questions and uh, so on. So the first one uh, from Cosmopolitan Dystopia episode one nine six, uh, where Phil discussed his book um, and we questioned him on it. Uh, Ian Hunter wanted to say that he thought Phil was uncharacteristically uh, soft in responding to my point about sovereignty and protection uh, near the end of the episode. Uh, Ian holds that Alex, that is me, conflated democracy and popular sovereignty, um, which are related but distinct, holds Ian Hunter. Um, He goes on to argue, basically, that um, democracy is maybe the way that popular sovereignty is manifested, um, but it's at one remove from the idea that all regimes ultimately depend on the consent of the governed. And the idea being that the consent of the governed is something which isn't uh, the same as democracy. So democracy is, is actual kind of, I guess, positive assent, some sense of shaping what the government will be at, at, at a basic level, whereas the consent of the governed is just basically not revolting. And so even uh, non-democratic regimes will have some sense of, uh, will, give, will have the populace give some sense of at least passive assent to being ruled over. Um, and that is the, the, the nature of sovereignty. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, and Ian Hunter says, don't take this lying down, Phil. Ian, you're absolutely right. Um, and that sovereignty does. And I was, um, what can I say? Sometimes I do roll over with Alex's um, points. Uh, you won't, I mean, obviously listeners can't see it with his puppy dog eyes looking all enthusiastic and desperate for approval. Some, what can I say? Sometimes daddy gets tired, but um, that, you're right. That, metaphor doesn't make any sense like you're the little dog rolling over no and no, i'm no. here holding the bone puppy dog your puppy <laughs> with your puppy dog eyes i felt sorry for you and ian hunter is right that i should not have given way on this point so that I sovereignty just, and democracy yeah. are separate okay but, mm. but spell out spell out what the the political import of this point is then well, that self-determination is um, is a category that is prior to democracy. So the point being that it does involve that sovereignty always involves a degree of um, political responsibility. So even in regimes, the simple fact of organizing a political community around the idea of sovereignty makes um, the people, the citizens of that state, ultimately responsible um, for the way and for the collective exercise of power and at one time i mean you know at one level that is um you know it's a kind of um it means that the bar is extraordinarily high for what politics is involved at the other level it is also the guarantee of any kind of the possibility of any kind of accountability um and political responsibility and it's precisely that link that these new models of sovereignty which are being inscribed in international law and international institutions are eroding so Sovereignty as responsibility, um, i.e. that states are responsible to the international community rather than to their citizens. That's what's being eroded. So, yeah, democracy and sovereignty overlap. Sovereignty is a precondition for democracy, but you can't have and you can't have democracy without sovereignty. Um, but nonetheless, they are also distinct. So, I mean, if that wasn't, um, if that didn't, if I didn't make that point forcefully enough, then I'm glad uh, Ian Hunter has given me the opportunity mm. to do so. Okay, very good. Um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, recent episode, episode 195. We're doing these in 
reverse chronological order. Uh, so the one with on China with Isabella Weber, uh, Nicholas Clark, uh, a new listener and a new fan, he says, uh, found the episode very compelling. Uh, living in Singapore with the awareness that the Singapore model, in quotation marks, was enormously influential on Deng Xiaoping in particular and continues to be a point of reference for Chinese policymakers. Li Kuan Yu, despite his Reagan-Thatcher bona fides, expounded a very perceptive model of of development within global capitalism that I think merits a closer look by the left. Now, uh, other listeners have helpfully pointed uh, Nicholas Clark in the direction of our own episode on uh, Singapore, which you did. I think it's number 115, uh, which has been proven very popular, actually. Uh, I think a lot of people have found that the talk of the Singapore model was so obfuscatory and unclear and used for ideological purposes that... Uh, Felt it was useful to clear clear up what exactly Singapore is. Um, so anyway, uh, Nicholas Clark continues saying that he's curious about the role of this development model going forward, especially outside of East Asian states, uh, ones that have actually tended to avoid the uh, end of the end of history and that sort of turbulence that have afflicted Western liberal democracies. So uh, yeah, Singapore model, is that a good thing? I mean, and I think what he means is the real Singapore as a model, not the uh, free market utopia haven sort of idea that uh, that uh, is often wedded to the idea of Singapore. Yeah, I mean, so I think this, the original Singapore episode that we did, we did after I came back from a, from a visit, um, a visit there um, with, with work, which was, I mean, whether I kind of had any experience of the actual <laughs> Singapore or not, obviously being a kind of a, a tourist and, um, you know, cosmopolitan. Not, sorry. Yeah. And, a, and a, an, an aspiring cosmopolitan philanthropist type, um, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what to, what to say in response to the question, because it's not really a question. It's more of a comment. This is what a lot of our listeners, you know, they're not questions. They're just, they're just comments. And you just have to say, yeah, good, good, good comment. Interesting. I don't know what to, know what to add. Was it, what okay. was the question? You tried to phrase well, it I mean, as a question. Ba- ba- no, basically, basically whether there's, um, wh- whether like the reality of Singapore, which influenced Deng Xiaoping. So a kind of, uh, you know, kind of state controlled capitalism uh, is a model for going forward. And I mean, I think there we can say, most likely it is um, in the longer term. It's just that states are kind of, there, there's no kind of, I don't think, pole of opinion within like Western democracies pushing towards this model. So it's more elites kind of innovating their way there or stumbling their way there, um, which we have seen both with the response to the lockdowns and also some of the kind of the transfer state uh, that is emerging perhaps uh, as well, more infrastructure spending and so on. We'll see. We'll see. Um, And we'll also also deal with this question a little in just a little bit too, in response to questions about the transfer state. Yeah. I guess a lot of elites look admiring, admiringly towards, towards China and its ability to act in a seemingly unified political way through very high levels of elite cohesion, which allow it to, you know, to to act as a kind of developmental state. But I don't think that's a, you know, I don't think this depends on what your political project is. But, but, but I think there's an element of like mirage there as well, or mis kind of misrecognition, because uh, as a friend of the podcast Lee Jones has pointed out to us a number of times, China is actually a lot less coherent 
than it seems. So you, although you do have the centralized control, it's very regionalized and therefore fractured with uh, regional uh, presidents fighting over funds and so on. So the idea of this kind of like seamless state capitalism uh, is, uh, is, is rather overstated. And I think just finally that I don't think the Western elites are, are, would be all too happy to have greater state control over over investment and so on. So, you know, that, that it's not something that will just emerge naturally because it seems like a better idea or a better way of running capitalism. Anyway, so let's let's move on to the next one. Uh, loads of questions in response to our reading of endnotes on non-movements or in our terms, anti-politics. Uh, we'll just select, select a couple of these. Um, Eli Sinesh points out that the, uh, well, actually just relates some of his own experience of the crisis of representation from the ground. Now, what specifically that means is that the sort of anti-political revolt is not just something that is against the political establishment, but where you have like strong, coherent democratic organizations fighting against it. Um, even supposedly oppositional or, you know, movements, parties, whatever, are themselves afflicted by this, um, well, I guess in some ways by a void, a void between the the people and the leaders. Um, and so they, uh, Ellie mentions their uh, experience with the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, where there's endless jockeying of caucuses, rising, falling, issuing manifestos, but they're all actually run by a Twitter slack ad hocracy, which is a good term, uh, in which rank and file members are a legitimation story, not a constituency being represented. Yeah, I found that. I mean, I obviously I can't speak from experience, but I found it a fascinating idea. And it sounds to me, I mean, you know, it sounds very plausible. So um, the idea that uh, that these so-called membership organizations, as um, as they say here, are just a legitimation story for these Twitter kind of online social media turf wars. It, yeah, I mean, it's all too grimly uh plausible, I think. And I imagine it's probably a similar pattern in outside of the DSA as well. Mm. Um, so move on to another question. I guess we can just take these all sort of together. Uh, Joel says, uh, organized labor's absolute decline is not a good reason to dismiss its relevance for the rebuilding of an emancipatory politics. In the context of the decimation of pretty much all voluntary organizations, the persistence of unions as the last remaining organs of mass collective agency would seem to make them more central than ever even with all their flaws and weaknesses. I have to disagree with this one. I think the, um, and quite strongly, I think this idea of that they're our last citadel to which we must rally, I think is exactly the kind of um, politics that serves to reinforce the PMC domination of most of these um, remaining unions, you know, at least in Britain. And I think it's a similar pattern in the UK. If they're, if they're not already kind of professional, effectively middle-class or public sector unions, they're um, unions that are captured by those equivalent groups at the leadership level. And I think they're indeed, you know, I mean, the way in which they're locked into the Democratic Party and also the way in which they're um, locked into the Labour Party here in the UK, they're definitely part of the problem. Um, which isn't to say that, you know, um, some of them might not be turned around and there might be shop floor insurrections or that their members indeed um, might be able to, you know, they might be able to do turn things around perhaps. But generally, I can't think of um, any particular union um, that I think is, uh, you know, with one partial exception perhaps here in the UK, that I would think is generally worth defending. They're very much part of the old order and they're coming under pressure because um, 
they're they realize they have very little very little legitimacy outside of their connections with social democratic parties i think uh was very clear in the the brexit process how disconnected the trade union leadership was from its membership um with pretty much with very few unions actually having a democratic process for you know for some sort of representation of their members views on brexit um i'm I'm sure i know what the partial exception that you're thinking of is there phil um but yeah i think it's just it's definitely you know this is not to kind of um or maybe the point here is that this idea of of the void say this kind of hollowing out of all these kind of associative um vehicles you know usually political parties are what I talked about but it's the same is true of unions that those kind of mechanisms which previously would have sought to have a sort of um uh, vertically integrate members and the the representatives within union structures have been you know have been really really hollowed out in the past few decades so yeah i mean <clears throat> not sure i have a kind of particularly crisp political conclusion um but yeah that's certainly the case in the uk it's not there's it's not like it's not so easy as just to say we can just rebuild unions and then we're all fine again because that you know we weren't fine in the first place as well i guess yeah i mean this again relates all to the kind of new agent you know who who would be the new radical agent today and i think it you know there's the problem that we discussed in that article in relation to that piece is this sort of desperate casting around by the left, by the postmodern left for, you know, 40, de- 40 years now looking for a new agent. And it often ends up stumbling upon kind of, you know, downwardly mobile middle classes supported by um, supported by the lumpen proletariat, you know, ethnic minorities fighting against racism or feminist movements and so on. And you get this sort of rainbow coalition. And of course, we know that that doesn't lead anywhere. And in fact, is so prone towards kind of recuperation by the powers that be that it ends up maybe playing more of a role in in sustaining capitalism and finding new ways for capitalism to legitimate itself than to providing any kind of challenge to to the way things are today so um on the other hand um on the other hand you have uh the the fact that the unions do i mean the 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 problem with unions is something is an old problem too it's not just uh that their leadership is you know kind of like oh it's a pmc leadership there was always a problem there was always a radical critique of the bureaucratization of uh unions of the so-called labor aristocracy and so on so i'm actually interested um if you guys i don't know if you have any points on this but about how the situation with unions today is the same or is different from the critique made about unions in the 1970s for example well, I think the situation is, I mean, I think you're right, Alex. I mean, and it was, you know, in classical kind of revolutionary politics um, with uh, articulated in Lenin's What is to be Done, it was precisely the trade union leadership that was identified as the problem. The reformist leadership of working class politics that was precisely contested by revolutionary social democrats in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So the fact that these, um, that, precisely this leadership has far less pull than it used to and that it can't be you know that it's it can't kind of um simply channel working class voters to um you know the parties of the organized um, center left i think that seems to me an advantage so in contrast to the listeners point that we should rally you know kind of rally around these remaining isolated fortresses i think um it seems to me the fact that we you know the fact that they might be ransacked 
um, doesn't seem to me to be uh, necessarily a problem from the viewpoint of uh, radical or emancipatory politics. It seems to me potentially an advantage. Yeah. I mean, I guess that wouldn't exclude necessarily having new unions formed. I mean, some union of workers, but uh, that the existing workers yeah, are... Yeah, I mean, some of the most kind of the kind of scrappy insurrectionist unions um, in the UK that have won, tried to organize gig workers and have won some kind of notable victories. Um, you know, they've done kind of they've had more notable victories for organized labor than the old establishment behemoths mm. like Unite and Unison and all that. Um, at the same time, though, the leadership, again, is kind of its academics who help to organize um, immigrant workers in in their university campuses in London. And so predictably, the leadership of those unions also has all academic prejudices about the EU, for instance. So they came out in support of, um, in support of the European Union. And As so often, the, the real problem is the academics. They're, they're, they just need, we just need some fields and some sending of them into those fields. That would help everybody, I think. Mm, I see Philip is wearing glasses. That must mean, you know... He's going to anyway, let's move on uh, to another question um, in relation to this same episode on our discussion of endnotes. JP points out that they argue the endnotes piece argues that traditional movements formed around relatively stable ideological structures. And JP argues that actually that took often a long time to become concrete or to solidify, really. Uh in the US, the simple fact that there is even the idea of politics centered around a class identity is an entirely novel idea for many of us. The axis of politics in recent decades has tended to operate on a spectrum that moves between social liberalism and social conservatism uh, and economics only being about you know how much taxes should be cut. Uh, as conditions have gotten worse for a lot of people, the class identity question has started to become harder to ignore. Um, which I think we can just take as a as something which, unless you guys have a comment on that specifically, um, I think is is right. I mean, that is sort of the end of the end of history. That it has, and it's something we, however critical of uh, of contemporary politics we are, we have to recognize, I guess, that there is we do live in a different world to what we did uh, a decade ago. Um, uh, another just, question, just a quick a yeah. quick point on the, and this isn't JP's uh, main point, but on this idea of class identity, like. Obviously, identity is at the moment still the, the predominant way through which class is understood. So you have uh, politicians or various, you know, various actors uh, legitimizing themselves and, and sort of, you know, here's my background. This is my you know, this is my class. And so therefore I can speak. I can speak to these people. I can speak on behalf of those people. Um, it is, you know, I mean, that's that's the way in which class perhaps has come back in. To politics, it's through an identity lens. Like, did you go to a private school? You know, what what did your parents I, do? Blah, just, blah, blah. just one like qualification to that: that in Britain, there's always been this sense of class in a cultural sense, which in the U U.S. doesn't have. And I think that's what's different in the U.S. Now you have this thing kind of emerging. Not to say that the America doesn't have. You know, they had socialist uh, socialist party. It had you know insurrectionary movements and so on. But I mean, in, in the past. 60 years, 70 years, it hasn't uh, had significant kind of class identity, I think. And that's something that, that I guess the JP is pointing out that that's something that's emerged, you know, kind of recently. Um, but again, you know, that, that, that's a problem. Once it gets taken onto the terrain of culture around the questions of who am I, rather than what do we want, uh, that inevitably is leads to conservative politics, basically. Um, and maybe to the uh, you know, funneling out dispersing of funds to different identity groups rather than any sense of social transformation. 
Um, Kasper Schaller uh, pointing out uh, an example from from Germany because uh, the article uh, takes aim at so-called citizen nationalism, something that we actually are more defensive of uh, or more in favor of, that uh, the German politician Sarah Wagenknecht uh, is a good example of citizen nationalism, continuously enraging the PMC parts of her party with hot takes such as that immigrants are to blame for lower wages. Um, I think this point of, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think we have a, we all necessarily completely agree on this idea of citizen nationalism, but I think the, you know, the, you know, that kind of phrase shouldn't be particularly terrifying in and of itself. It's like, yeah. you know, there is a, there is a linking of citizenship to a nation state. And that's, you know, that seems to me pretty, pretty much a, a reality rather than a hot take. But maybe that's the, the 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 true hotness of the take, the true heated up core that I'm trying to say. This is common sense when actually it's obviously a political claim. Yeah, I mean, and also in the episode, you know, the, we discussed the fact that Endnotes treats it as a retreat to citizen nationalism, where I think Phil made the point on the episode, which is right, that politically it's not a retreat. Politically, citizen defense of citizen nationalism is is an advance, <laughs> at least in the sense that so many uh, basic rights have been have been worn away. So to defend, you know, parliamentary democracy even is a is maybe a forward step. Um, Two last questions from this. There were loads of this on, on this. Um, you seem to have, it seems to have sparked a lot of debate. Um, Paul Brewer w- found the episode fascinating, um, but they don't like that in the Bungaverse, as he calls it. Uh, we know what we don't like, but we're less for- forthcoming about what is to be done. Uh, I came across an interesting piece of polling data which showed that healthcare was not a particularly important issue to African Americans. When you think about the fact that Bernie never gained any traction among the mass of African-Americans with Medicare for all as his signature issue, you've got to wonder if any white candidate on the left focusing on this issue could win the Democratic Party nomination with African-American votes. Uh, If so, what is to be done? I feel like it's time to map out the institutional structures that need to be built using the materials that lie around us. And at least the EndNotes Collective is making an essay out of that, uh, well, making a try of that. Phil. I don't really know what well, I don't really know what to do with this because um I mean it's a big ask but then I suppose you know Paul Brewer kind of puts um puts together the the kind of I don't know the weird kind of post anonymous post anarchism of endnotes together with um how can um you know a progressive uh, democratic party candidate win african americans and I don't really, I mean, those two things don't seem to me to sit together very well, or perhaps they sit together, you know, very easily, in fact. So I don't, I mean, we, we don't have, uh, we don't have prescriptions, but I suppose with, um, and I guess that is, I, that's part of uh, a collective problem of the left, I guess, and uh, we're, we suffer from it as much as anybody else, Um I suppose all we can say all we can say is that uh, we hope through through the process of talking through some of these things and discussing them and debating them, hopefully as honestly as we possibly can, that that process is is useful, um, that it's politically clarifying, and that seems to me important um, and perhaps even more important than um, institution building at this particular point. But I think there's yeah there's, there's there's two points to make here. One is that the what Phil meant to say is that the the prescriptions and easy solutions are in the the thirty dollar Patreon tier. So if you want <laughs> if you want those, then 
upgrades your subscription. That's terrible. That's what what George said is true. The second point. Yeah, I mean, this is this the question. Like, do we do we have the analysis at the moment to put into practice, um, or is there in fact more theory required? Um, I, I I mean, I'd I I don't know. I'm I'm yeah. I think it's been a it's been a very uh, enervating period during during COVID and the feeling that you know that that there are structures can be built. Um, that feeling has certainly d- decreased, at least, at least for me. There seemed like after the, <clears throat> you know, just before COVID, it seemed like there was a there was possibility to to kind of to, to maybe do something a bit more practically. But the last fifteen months have been pretty, you know, pretty anti-political in the sense of you know all of the um, political tools that you traditionally have, like getting together and meeting people and discussing things and arguing in face to face. Those haven't you know haven't really been as easy, as readily available. So. Yeah, I mean, keep 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 uh, tuned for the solutions that we will surely uh, develop and put into practice at some point soon. Well, but I mean, also, you know, you need practice uh, on which uh, as a basis on which to theorize. And yeah, as George points out, the last year and a half, it's been very hard to practice anything other than uh, tweeting with a thumb up your ass. So, um, or you know, not. But I mean, is that the way you tweet? Uh, yeah, that's that why. That's why the tweets are so bad. Tweet. Yeah, yeah I was no, say, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, one final question. Uh, Andrea was outraged at Phil's recycling of the right-wing manipulation of Pasolini's poem about 68ers. Now, this was um, Phil made reference to so, uh, the filmmaker Pasolini's poem, uh, in which he talks about. Um, the Battle of uh, Valle Giulia between students and polit- and police, excuse me, um, and that Andrea points out that episode is actually much more complex uh, than an independent communist thinker siding with authoritarianism or with the police, which uh, Phil seemed to reduce it to. Uh, Andrea pointed. Uh, sorry, th- just to just to jump in there, the, the the comment puts it in in more strident terms. Phil's usual reductionism when it comes to justifying his prejudices. Mm. Sorry, but we have That's to true. we have to That's we have true. to engage right in to that out. Yeah. an honest critique, honest critique of the the bung the, and, and the it, core members of the bungaverse. And it's true, Sorry, we, Phil. We, we, but... It is it is difficult sometimes to to have to deal constantly with Phil's uh, endless reductionism. <laughs> um, and and so they, they point us to an article which I went and had a look. It's uh, and and kind of translated, but basically um, Pasolini. Was saw the students as being on the right side and the pol- and the police on the wrong side, but uh, Pasolini's intent was a paradoxical one, that pointing out that the real revolution will never be made by students because they're the children of the bourgeoisie. At most, they'll be able to wage a civil war, specifically a generational one, within the bourgeoisie. But revolution can only ever be made by the workers, um, and the bourgeois press will never lick their asses. Uh, never lick the workers' asses as the bourgeois press licked the students' asses uh, in the late 60s, um, which I think is a fair point. Phil? Uh, no, because, I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't, maybe I wasn't clear enough, but I mean, uh, this is what I was trying to put across. I certainly wasn't, uh, I mean, I, you know, right-wing manipulation of Pasolini's poem. I don't think I was saying anything separate from what, um, uh, from what Andrea has said here. Um, so well, I think you did. Say, you know, the police were working. The police were working class, and the students were all bourgeois, and therefore, by default, you know, the police are the good guys. And Pasolini's no, 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 that's not. You know, that's, no, guys. no, no. That was, it was the idea that his sympathies that he articulates the fact that he um, in the poem that there's a lack of you know he doesn't have the instinctive sympathy with the students. Um, I mean, I never, I never. 
Yes, but, I mean, I, but I take that, right? I mean, I was just drawing attention to, I mean, I was just drawing attention to that. So that there is going back, even back to the high point of um, of that kind of the radical time of the 1960s, that you still have, even then, ambivalence among certain kind of um, thinkers and um, intellectuals on the left, such as Pasolini. So I don't think anything that I said was... Uh, you know, kind of uh, contradicts what is Andre said here. Perhaps I wasn't clear enough about the um, nuance of it. And so, you know, I'm happy to be corrected on that score. I think the jury is still out when it comes to your reductionism. We will collect more more evidence and we will we will return to this. And if 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 found guilty of that, there'll be some sort of suitable punishment, I'm sure. You'd have to engage in a course of expansionism or whatever the opposite of reductionism is. Well, yes. Complexification. There you go. Well, you'll have to use the word complexify in three successive episodes. I think we just have to be clear that reductionism is not the problem. It's reductionism in defense of Phil's prejudices. So what we need is reductionism. What other kind of reductionism? Of of other prejudices that aren't Phil's. Yeah, do it it in in defense of my prejudices and it's fine. (laughs) Um, Let's move on. Uh, 20 Years Crisis. That was episode 193 discussing uh, another of Phil's books. Uh, this was very popular, uh, very popular both in terms of the comments and, and also lots of people uh, listened to this and liked this, which uh, which was nice to see. I, th- um, I thought, I thought some it was Some people a good... did like Phil's reductionism. So yeah. I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good episode. I mean, I'm not sure about the 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 guest, but certainly the questions and the and the hosting, it was, the production very well, was very, very well produced. I think it was very good. I thought very good, very good. Uh, Ran Heilbrunn says that was really excellent. In some strange way, Israel Palestine was one of the forefronts of the end of history moment, at least in its 1990s variation. I'm thinking about the Oslo Accords, the Americanization of Israeli culture, and the still widespread dominance of postmodern identity politics, quote unquote, post Zionism in the Israeli left. Do you plan on doing an episode on Israel-Palestine in the future? I'd love to hear your thoughts on those issues. I'd love to just say, fuck no, never. Um, but maybe maybe we will have to um, at some point um, in time. Unavoidable, I think. Um, I'm glad I'm glad the listener enjoyed the episode. Um, I don't, you know, and I've, it's something which I should probably have talked about more in the book is peace processes and how important they were to that particular period. Um, the iconic one being, obviously, Israel-Palestine, this endless process um, which never actually leads to peace and somehow which now kind of has, in fact, um, blurred the boundaries between peace and war in ways that are genuinely disturbing. I mean, you know, the, the peace process kind of coexists somehow, formally still coexists with all the kind of recent raids on Gaza that we've seen by um, by Israel. So I think it's um, I think talking more about what I call perpetual peace processes would have been um, would have been warranted. Um, but there are others as well. And I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland is the other kind of iconic example. And um, that is also playing out in all sorts of strange and unanticipated ways um, through the as a result of the Brexit process. So I think um, the listener's right. I think we should talk about peace processes at some point, And inevitably, that means talking about um, Israel-Palestine as well. I think if you talk about peace processes, and this this links to the to the comment that's just coming up, it brings in the role of NGOs and kind of INGOs as well, um, because they're the they're, that suits them very well. I mean, this kind of perpetual peace process, as you put it, that is a good sort of forum in which NGOs can can bring in the voices of X, Y, and Z, and can you know can help to legitimate 
that process and, and give it content at the same time that it's obviously got another side to it, which is that the perpetual war is continuing to go on. Yeah, and it explains, I think, to some degree, the left shift against um, Israel is partly cast in those humanitarian terms. Um, so whereas the left and, you know, there was a significant portion of the left that was pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist across the course of the Cold War, the bulk of the left is um, pivoted against Israel um, in the post-Cold War period. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by the growth of humanitarian politics on the side of the left, which means um, the kind of the Manichaean polarization between good and evil, um, seizing upon the Palestinians as um, the victims, powerless um, powerless uh, people without agency that require the outside intercession of NGOs, that require the outside intercession of the United Nations and international agencies, and at the same time, the um, the problem, you know, the Israel's problematic behavior is quintessentially that of the nation state. The solution being some kind of supranational um, reform, oversight. Um, United Nations involvement, pressure from the international community, and so on. So I think yeah. it fits the pattern, the way in which the left has responded to the Israel-Palestinian conflict over the last um, 30 years fits the pattern very well, and I think reproduces those problems, which is why you know no solution will come out of the international community to Israel-Palestine, despite which the fact is- the left is, that's the way they've organized around it. Yeah, which is a point touched on by Eli Senesh in his comment that uh is Arab Israeli Arab politics is very sort of end of history uh, because of the role of NGOs. If George has already hinted at this, uh, the concept of, that the great humanitarian war of the NGOs against the nation state isn't actually a good idea will get you seriously tarred and feathered from the left worldwide. Indeed. Uh, finally, just on this one, Paul Brewer asks Phil what he thinks about the historian AJP Taylor after having commented that this episode was one of his indisputable top 20 bunga cast episodes in cap caps so it must be true uh phil what do you think about agp taylor whose writing style paul finds wholly admirable but whose approach to history seemed out of step even somewhat in its own time let alone today yeah i'd I'd be curious to hear more about paul's um specific interest in ajp taylor because he doesn't um kind of uh explain what the what the kind of motivation for the question is aside from his um kind of status as a canonical heterodox thinker um it's been a while since i've read any ajp taylor i still kind of you know uh kind of find myself admiring many aspects of his um, kind of classic book, Origins of the Second World War in Europe, which I understand kind of modern historiography has shifted against, um, where he just basically made the point that um, Nazi Germany, notwithstanding the crisis of the 1930s and the interwar period, was partly just a great power carve-up, and the machinations of great powers pursuing their interests, and the attempt to kind of retrospectively fit it into a narrative of good versus evil distorted the actual kind of politics of the period. And I still think, you know, notwithstanding advances in um, historical knowledge in the intervening period, that still seems to me to, you know, carry a great deal of weight. And that's not to say, of course, that his um, he was a blistering polemicist and uh, deeply insightful um, in his politics, despite his also kind of um, visceral anti-communism in many ways. Very good. Uh, just the last couple ones of these. Why episode 192, just a comment which I'm going to read out and we're going to move on. JP points out in relation to our three articles on pandemic dissatisfactions. There's nothing, this was about what, what would be punk rock today, a discussion that we had. There's nothing as punk rock right now as being pro Keir Starmer. 
negative 47% approval on his way to destroying a legacy political party, not unlike François Hollande did to the Socialist Party in France from 2012 to 2017. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. I have to say, it's a bit like uh, Millwall. No one likes us. We don't care. That's, that's you know, that's Keir Starmer's political brand. Yeah. Centrism. Milk water. Milk water? Milk toast. <laughs> Lukewarm uh, centrism. Is, you can have uh, some milk, some water, and some toast. Yeah, no that's butter. that's uh, yeah, that's your centrist diet. All right, episode one ninety, top five fetishes, which was our chat with Elena Langer. Uh, hi, Elena. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Langer says. Says Dan O'Hara here about identity politics and the labor theory of value, but I'm confused about her argument regarding the ideas of the middle class being hegemonic. Uh, specifically that if the middle class can only attach itself parasitically to proletariat or capitalist, then how can its values be the dominant ones in in neoliberal capitalist societies? Um, and we also have several questions actually on this on this very similar terrain, which is again is sort of the PMC debate again. Uh, in in response to some of the questions we're going to discuss in just a little bit, um, so. Uh, maybe we will just bear this one in mind because we'll come back to it uh, in in discussion of a different episode. Um, but ba- basically, Dan's point is that um, why does the parasitic relationship of the middle class to the ruling class that Lange outlines uh, invert the classic Marxist statement that or Marx's classic statement that the dominant values of society are the values of the ruling class? Um, so basically. When we talk about the PMC, are we we should be more careful in not pretending that the PMC are the ruling class themselves. Um, so we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it in just a second. Uh, Mate points out that uh, Robert. It's interesting that Robert Kurtz is read and has followers even in Brazil. Uh, since he died, his former group exit is just a shadow of its former self, um, and that even the radical academic left in Germany has shifted away from the ideas of Wertkritik. Would be interesting to hear how it is in Brazil. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, Robert Kurtz is massively popular, but he's been kind of surprisingly widely read by intellectuals. Um, and you know, the book, as I said, I think when introducing it in this episode, they it, it's something that doesn't exist in English. I'm actually kind of looking to see whether it can get it translated into English. Um, give us a shout, people, uh, if you're if that's something you're interested in. Um, and uh, but but basically, I think the the influence that it had in Brazil and maybe in other countries in similar situations was that, as Kurtz argues, the crisis that is now hitting the first world was something that hit the second world before that and and even before then in the 1970s and 80s hit the third world. And I think that seems to explain Brazil's own sense of, uh, you know, a, a future infinitely postponed, something that I wrote about in, in my essay and, and, uh, and obviously just stole it from Kurtz. Um, anyway, I wish it existed in English because I would highly recommend everybody read it. 187, The Transfer State. This was our uh, kind of double episode with uh, Anton Yeager. Uh, Just one question, which I'm going to pull out from this, uh, because Paul Brewer is having a go at Phil again, uh, not specifically for his reductionism to support his prejudices, but actually kind of it is. Yeah, it is again, Phil uh, being reductionist to support his prejudices. Basically that Trump and Brexit are not working class politics, as Phil claims. Trump's anti-NAFTA, anti-outsourcing proposals um, we're predominantly just targeting one fraction of the working class, uh, largely white factory workers, the old Rust Belt and manufacturing industries. 
Um, while I think Phil is right about the idea that Brexit is a working, quote unquote, working class issue mobilized against the left party, I don't see Trump having any but superfi- any but a superficial equivalence. Uh, and the GOP largely ignored the kind of original Trumpist strategy. So um, basically, uh, I think they see Brexit as potentially having a kind of new working class nucleus, but Trump uh, not really. Please convince me otherwise, says Paul, because I love Phil's irascible interventions just as much as George's jokes. Um, See, I can't no. tell whether you're being sarcastic there or not, Paul. This is like slightly decent. And undermined the whole argument with that that last yeah, that point. last claim. I'm not sure. So, I mean, uh, I mean, look, I mean, I wouldn't disagree, right? Uh, it's very telling, in fact, that Trump's never really delivered for um, for uh, his the working class voters in the Northeast that he managed to swing from the Democratic Party, those who voted for Obama and then voted for him um, in 2016. And he never really delivered despite all the rhetoric. So, you know, I don't disagree with the characterization that it was never really something which was built in to um, the way in which the Republican Party functions. So at least it doesn't seem to have made any lasting imprint. I mean, I suppose, you know, we'll see in due course over the next few years, whereas the Tories have... um, you know, very evidently kind of um, built, have pivoted in terms of their electoral base. So I wouldn't disagree. I mean, it's working class politics. It's not kind of um, uh, traditional kind of working class politics, but there's no getting away from the fact that it um, it clearly keys in to working class dissatisfactions, both in the US and the UK. Okay. Um, just uh, two more episodes ago, one uh- Quick one on number 189 about the Latin American pink wave uh, where I chatted with Fabio Luis. Uh, Listening to this new episode, I was struck by some of the similarities between the communalist contradictions in Chavismo and the Apoyist project in Rojava, which I'm not actually familiar with that terminology. While obviously the context is much different, the PYD uh, in, in Kurdistan have constantly struggled with implementing democratic confederalism or the commune system from above as a vanguard party. Um, and the opposition is somewhat internal, though even more contradictory as a cadre is implementing the system seem to mostly use it to legitimize party decisions. Um, I think that's an interesting point, and I think is something which is very central in attempts of the left to overcome or, or to kind of incorporate their critiques of Stalinism into, um, into contemporary political practice. So the idea is to devolve power back to, uh, you know, community-based or, or, or other sort of more local organizations, which are much more autonomous, uh, to not have this centralizing and top-down sense of power of command from the top, which, you know, seems to be good because it means more freedom um, and more responsibility for taking charge of your, of your own life, of your own collective uh, life. Um, but it come, runs into a contradiction be, in, precisely because there's sections of the state who don't want to give up that power. And you have it with uh, the sort of Chavista elites in Venezuela. And it's interesting to read that similar process happens in Rojava, though there, um, probably for more obvious reasons, that in a state of war, it's probably quite difficult to decentralize, <laughs> which actually was the experience, of course, of the Soviet Union. And to a certain extent, uh, Venezuela being somewhat under siege as well. So, I mean... Phil, Phil is just going, what? So why do you speak, Phil? Uh, I don't know, man. Like the experience of the Soviet uh, and Rojava and Venezuela, like all crushing them all together. I mean, you know, like it's not surprising that it's um, 
the you know democratic confederalism or whatever you know the communalism and so on the attempt to devolve power um has been less than kind of successful i suppose in rojava because um you know the pkk is an old it's this kind of weird postmodern stalinist outfit it's kind of um you know supposedly some kind of new new kind of anarchist style communal organization but at the same time it's all based around um Ocalan's decision making and Ocalan at the center of it is this kind of unimpeachable charismatic authority so those you know i mean the fact that there are contradictions there and that it ends up looking very different from the rhetoric um should come as no surprise and you know as alex says the fact that it all takes place in the context of this um uh, brutal many-sided civil war obviously makes uh, it makes it all the more kind of strange and difficult to get a handle on yeah indeed i, I just think that the the yeah trying to do bottom-up politics by implementing it top down is is difficult and it's because the sort of big democratic moment the revolutionary moment uh is not sustained and it happened in you know you had a big uprising in venezuela in 1989 but chavez doesn't take power uh until the end of the next decade so they're you know is trying to do something kind of demo, demo, democratic and democratizing at a time when um the process is being led from the top down um Last set of these, which is uh, in response to the last Alpha bonus bonus, um, if this isn't getting too circular, um, but there were lots of these, uh, and it's all around primarily the PMC debate. There's just one point about uh, COVID, which we're going to deal with quickly, and then we're going to deal with these uh, PMC debate questions, because uh, you guys seem to love that shit. Um, so, you know, uh, we, we will give you what you want. Um, Mark Vallis says, the reason I'm pro-lockdown or what we in Germany would call a zero COVID policy is because it seemed like the fastest way to deal with the crisis and the fastest way to get back civil liberties. Um, and I don't want my region to read its own mutation and make things worse for everyone. Though we can agree that the current state of half-hearted indefinite lockdown is pretty bad and symptomatic. I will take your advice though, to try to go beyond the lockdown question and focus on the state failure aspect of the crisis. By the way, I like George, so try not to edit out too much of his jokes. George, did you send this in? Um, I, I had one of my my agents. No, it, it, it wasn't me because the 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 listener uh, and I would disagree on on zero COVID. Um, but I do have a. I just came up with a new a new. I wouldn't say joke, but like since we're talking about the previous bonus bonus, shall we move? Shall we move on? The, Alex, you want this, to is getting, this is getting edited out. But I'll just keep repeating it. We could call it like alpha boros boros it's like a, an ouroboros where we're sort of mm. we're, we're i like that no i like that i mean it's not funny i'm definitely not going to laugh but i but i liked it i appreciate it it's one of those jokes it doesn't make you laugh but you kind of think hmm yeah that's uh, there's something in that i mean it's a bit maybe the person who said this is actually smarter than they look maybe <laughs> um but what would i say yeah to, to go beyond the lockdown question and focus on the state failure aspect i mean that was the th the, the article i mentioned at the top of the, the the show was basically like yeah i mean we were talking about state failure whenever the last bonus bonus was in this kind of period of homogenous time since the first lockdown or whatever it's like yeah could have made that that same argument at a number of different points and it's it's still valid now unfortunately yeah i think and, and as we said at the very top of the show as well any attempt at kind of zero covid uh one is impossible and two 
uh, will be used for other motives and those m- will be sustained. You know, you it's also, the case it's also a bit right unambitious. Now. What about negative COVID? Like, what about taking the fight to to other <laughs> coronaviruses? That's true. I think we should get rid of colds. Imagine how many days lost you have through colds. So anyway, um, right. Just to finish this off, the PMC debate. Uh, we already had Dan O'Hara's comment from earlier, if you bear those in, in your minds. Um, that Elias Brown says, it would be interesting to have an episode with a critic of the PMC discourse to try and hash out the con- concept in more detail. It seems to me that people who find it useful and those who don't tend to talk past each other, repeating the same talking points while not really addressing each other's arguments. Uh, Dan O'Hara, um, who already made a comment but makes a comment here on the same thing, um, I do think it's a useful concept, but I do worry that the emphasis placed on it by Catherine Liu and others risks obscuring the fact that the real ruling class is still the bourgeoisie. Um, and Tom L. Uh, pointing out that Yes, indeed, class is more stratified and maybe more sophisticated than in Marxist times. Uh, And maybe professionals and managers do constitute a class of their own after all. But my only issue really was with the use of the term PMC to describe all non-manual workers. A university graduate in a dead-end office job on minimum wage is not PMC or even lower PMC. All right, so uh, on the PMC question, George. I have, yeah, I mean, it's just this is just off the top of my head, but it seems like there are at least three different reasons why somebody could disagree with the use of this. The first is that instead of using PMC, you could want to use petty bourgeois. So you could talk, you could kind of focus in specifically on the relationship to production, which maybe PMC aligns a little bit. Maybe it's more of a focus on cultural um, things. I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of saying I hold to any of these or whatever. I'm just, this is like off the top of my head. Um, the second is like something, someone like Michael Lind, who would talk about the managerial overclass, um, not the PMC. So about 10% of US population, but that might just be a difference in terminology. And the third is that you could sort of say, well, it's not about the PMC. It's about the 1% versus the 99%. And you could even say, this is sort of somebody who's PMC who doesn't want the focus put on them. And instead is like, no, we need to we need to mobilize to against uh, against billionaires so trying to kind of say, well, it's not about that kind of class conflict between the kind of hereditary educated elite and and workers. It's about, you know, the just the billionaires versus everybody else are trying to draw a different sort of sort of um, division. I do think there's a like it's, I think it's we've had a, we've had a few episodes on it and I think we haven't really I didn't. I haven't read anything that, that I've really thought, yeah, that absolutely sort of nails really the contemporary class structure in, in a way that's politically completely correct. But obviously that's there. That's the challenge. And that's what's there to be kind of to be written or to be thought through at the moment. I, I would just say two things quickly, which is I think this idea that, you know, harking back to. Um, the 19th century and saying that things were simpler then and things are more complicated now. I think it's kind of, um, you know, it's a cop out essentially with the greatest respect to uh, to the listener. Um, and just not, I mean, it's just not true, right? Um, the idea that in the past it was kind of uh, always very clear, bright lines between the two sides rather than equally kind of complex questions that in Marx's day or in the mid 19th century would involve, you know, I don't know, different ethnic groups in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
um, nationalities, questions, questions. And the of, peasantry, which was a que- which is a question we don't have to deal with. Like, what is yeah, their position? In the of class? course, yeah, all of that. You know, I mean, there's so you know Polish independence, Irish independence. I mean, all of these things. You know, so immensely kind of um, perhaps even more. You know, arguably even more complicated. Um, so the idea that it was um, you know kind of rigid and clear, and things are more complicated now, um, and that we have more difficult problems than they did in the past i think yeah that's to make things too simple the other point is i think that you know in these debates it's very easy to um try and make things to again to kind of uh, make things to to make things too simplistic so which is to say on the other side of this the idea for instance so this listener says like a university graduate and a dead-end office job and the minimum wage is not pmc you know true right but they're probably very, you know, they're probably very likely to be in terms of their cultural and political outlook, they will be PMC. Um, and perhaps if you took the kind of classic example and the ones that we've talked about, you know, if downwardly mobile, feeling squeezed, but um, deeply resentful of the kind of um, promises that were uh, held out to people who were seeking to kind of um, improve their lives through the meritocracy and through education and through accepting a certain kind of cultural outlook, um, then they will be, they will cling to those ideas all the more strongly, even if it has no kind of correspondence to their actual kind of lived existence in terms of their living standard and their the pay packet they take home at the end of the month is this so, phil is this is this reductionism to, to to justify your prejudices or not i would say it's reductionism that corresponds to the real world hmm. um i just i think one one point on this um and i think it's on similar lines to what phil is saying is that in a very confusing political moment very confusing political period uh, there is a tendency to want to put people into boxes and to go, okay, this is the class structure. And then you have your chart where you can look up and go, okay, these are the people who are here. Are they friends or are they enemies? And that's not a very dialectical or historical way of looking at the the world and looking at class. Ultimately, I think we would all emphasize the political nature of class rather than just merely the social one where you put people into boxes. And that's easier than to do to say, okay, you have proletarian and bourgeois because you know what those respective projects are and that sections of the middle class might align with the proletariat and then you say well they're part of the proletarian movement even if they um, earn more and have higher status jobs and whatever today when those political conflicts don't play out very clearly it's very hard to ascribe people to different camps and therefore we had this endless debate about within the middle class if we're being honest about the middle class about who stands where um, and i think that is an evasion of the political tasks at hand I was going to I was going to I was going to question whether it's a a confusing and complex political moment or not but um we 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 wrote a book we wrote a book saying it is so you know yeah but maybe <laughs> things are clearer maybe through the process of writing the book I, I, things have now become clearer or maybe I'm just hmm. getting more reductionist and and maybe people just need to read it to just uh, reduce things down uh, and uh, have it suit their own like prejudice. a good like a good <laughs> source you know you need to, you need to spend the time just reducing it down on a low heat that's what listening yeah. to a podcast is you kind of your brain is is losing um, volume but it's just <laughs> being reduced down to its most important parts oh yes you want that sweet bunga jus. okay that's it from us for now uh, we Sounds hope you've enjoyed gross. this. <laughs> it does. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. If you, we've ignored your question uh, or overlooked it or misinterpreted you, please do get in touch and shout at us. Uh, that's fine. Uh, we hope to be doing another one of these in maybe six to eight weeks 
time. Uh, keep your comments coming. We hope you're enjoying this. Uh, and if you haven't yet bought a copy of The End of the End of History, uh, please oh, do feel it be out on the 20th. People know the book is coming out. Just, you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a volume output thing. You just need to keep bashing them over the head. Otherwise, they'll, you know. Okay, bye-bye.